they're all very fast. They're all like so you have like for example Kayashi Do, which is basically a very fast parry repost. So they're coming in for your head, you block it and hit their flank on the other side, like immediately. But winding actions sometimes so if you look at like sometimes they happen. So uh it's key, which is the stab to the throat. Sometimes you'll see them with like a winding action that may or may not have been intentional, but is still there, and they'll get a point for it. But as far as like them being taught, they're really not. So it's much more the cut around school. Yeah, yeah. Um, n- not always. So cut around actually is a lot more difficult in kendo. If you are cutting around, you're usually going to the um like the the dough which is like the stomach because when you attack in kendo you're usually running straight in at the at the opponent and you keep moving in so as soon as you parry the other the opponent's going to be too close to cut around and hit um there there's exceptions and it is possible to do it but it's not as common hmm. usually you go more for attacking into somebody else's attack or doing a repost on the same side of their sword. All right. Should we begin episode 11? Sure. Cool. All right. We've been recording for a while, so we've got a new Kendo podcast on the go. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. We'll right. have a sport fencing podcast too soon, I'm sure. Yeah. Dave, I yeah. want to hear you and Kurt and so on uh, discuss Kendo. I'm sure it'll be enlightening. Yeah, yeah Kurt. Yeah, yeah. Um, we can have not, a spin-off called Fencing by the Living Lineage. Yeah. If we're not <laughs> high enough rank to do that, we would um, oh. we would be ridiculed in the kendo community. <laughs> it's fine. Nobody well, in the kendo okay. community would ever listen to it. That's true. Yeah, we're ridiculed in the They're busy training. So fine. Yeah, that's true. All right. Here but we go. being ridiculed in the HEMA community is a compliment. <laughs> Fair. All right. Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smorridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. This is episode 11, where we'll be discussing lines 42 to 43 of the Zettel on the crimp hat, or Crooked Hue. Um, we haven't been up to anything in the last week, because we just recorded episode 10. So, apart from some chat about kendo and fencing and other sword-related sports. <laughs> All right. uh, so we're moving on from the Zornhau onto the Krumpau section. Uh, Johanna, could you give me lines 42 and 43 in the original German? Yep. Der Krumpau. Krump auf Behende wirft ein Ort auf die Hände. Krump, wer wohl setzt, mit Schritten viel Hau letzt. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you uh, give me Harry's translation? Throw up crump and don't be slow. Onto the hands, the point you throw. Many cuts are plainly wrecked with a crump and with good steps. Thank you very much. And let me just think for one moment. Is it worth going through the gloss here? Always, surely. Okay. Yeah, you'd love. 
I can't remember which one column in the spreadsheet is you'd left though. Just so I might just go the composite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll go for the composite. All right. This is the text and the gloss of the curved hue with its plays. Text curve on nimbly, throw the point on the hands. Gloss. Remember, the curved hue is one of the four displacements against the four guards, and therewith counters the guard that is called ox, and also the overhue and the underhue. Drive it like this. When you approach him with your onset, if he then stands against you and holds his sword before his head in the guard of ox on his left side, then set your left foot forward and hold your sword on your right shoulder in the guard, and from your guard, leap with your right foot well on the right side against him, and strike over his hands from crossed arms with the long edge. If he hews on your right side towards the exposure with an over or under hue, then leap away with the right foot well towards his left side and strike him with crossed, outstretched arms with the point upon his hands. Another, likewise you can drive the curved hue from the barrier guard on both sides, positioning yourself in that guard like this. When you come towards him with your onset, then set your left foot forward and hold your sword near your right side with the point on the earth so that the long edge is turned above, and offer an exposure on your left side. If he then hews above toward your exposure, then leap from the hue with your right foot well on your right side against him, and thrust the pommel of your sword under your right arm with the left hand, and strike him with the long edge with crossed hands, with the point upon his hands. Whew, oh wait, there's one more. Position yourself in the barrier guard on your left side like this. When you come towards him with your onset, then set your right foot forward and hold your sword near your left side with crossed hands with the point on the earth so that the short edge is above, and offer an exposure on your right side. If you then hews towards the exposure, then leap from the hue with your left foot well on his right side against him, and in the spring strike him with the short edge over his hands. There we go. So, two different sections here. That was long. That was, that was long. So, it ends with the barrier guard on both sides which is Schrankert in the original German. But it starts with uh, with using this type of cut uh, to verse it, which is our parry or attack, maybe. Who knows? One of the four guards encounters it, that guard being Ox. But it also works against an overhue and an underhue. All right, so for the listeners... T, I'm going to pick on you. How would you describe the crimp power as an action? Uh, so the crimp power, obviously, is basically just doing two player in, but not going behind a sword. Um, <laughs> uh, if you listen to our last episode. Uh, more seriously, the way I tend to teach the crimp um, to students when I want them to introduce the action is to describe it as doing a left side cut, but from your right shoulder or from your right side more generally. So you're coming down on a diagonal angle from the left, you're crossing your hands over to give a smooth arc, you're powering it with a turn of the hips in that direction, which is kind of discordant with your feet. Um, everything ends up being quite crooked and out of alignment compared to the way it usually would be. But you can end up with a pretty smooth action that has pretty efficient power generation for cutting if you want to cut things. And if I've already taught somebody to do cuts on the left and right side, telling them to do this left side cutting action but from the right, sort of works out pretty efficiently as a way to teach the action. So that's my introduction to Crump or Crump 101 when I want to teach it to someone uh, as a blow. Two interesting things about this, uh, which I was going to quickly mention, are one, that this fills a lot of the niche I might ever need for a cut from the left, 
nearly any time I would want to potentially cut from my left, uh, above left, I can cut a crump instead um, and get most of the same effects. Um, and secondly, this leads to a crump that reaches quite far out. A lot of people have a sort of a very close to the body version of a crump, the classic windscreen wiper kind of action. And this version ends up reaching much further forward um, and just being a more angled cut uh, instead of a, a flat one kind of perpendicular to you. So that plays differently in fencing from that perspective. It reaches a lot further and becomes more of an action that strikes out towards some target. Cool. Uh, anybody else got anything to add to that? So I've never heard the phrase windscreen wiper before, but I love it. <laughs> really? The, Here in the US, <laughs> we say windshield wiper. Yeah, uh, we call it windshields. And I've heard wow. windscreen on British television, but not windscreen wiper. But the so the interesting thing, and I like T's explanation, um, but it feeds into the idea of so crump as a word um, means a lot of things, but the primary one is crooked. And it also means curved. So it's not crooked in the sense of like jagged, right? A lightning bolt wouldn't be described as crumb, but it's a, a curved thing. So, or bent, something that should be straight, but instead has been made crooked. Um, but what that sort of leads to is interesting um, moral connotations, for example, where we, we you could describe a person who has bad, bad character as being crumb. And we used to we usually say crooked in the sense of this is a crooked physical movement, but it also might be crooked in the sense that it's breaking all Mixing the rules the that crook. we've had before. When we, by the time we get to the end of the Krumpau section, we're getting to, we're going to have discarded literally all the lessons in the general instruction. We're going to break them all one by one as we go through these plays. So it could be crooked um, or bent or whatever in the sense of, this is the fight that doesn't work by the rules um, that the Zornhau and the Gemeinelera follow. And in Latin, it's ictus curvus, which sounds like it should mean curved, but also has the same meanings of crooked and so on. Although it is the root word for curved. I used Ooh. to not like that explanation, but I'm starting to like it a lot more and more the more I think about it. Right. So, I mean, in T's explanation right now, we had cutting from above your left side. We had stepping opposite your cutting. We had, well, we're going to get more as we go through this text. We're going to suddenly discover how we're going to be fencing from the Nach instead of the four by baiting our opponent to attack us and then waiting for his attack, which violates two different rules. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to, um, I'm going to flow into the um, idea of cutting against the ox in this with the with the crooked hue because my my idea that I have for it kind of relates to this. So if your opponent is standing in left ox, so if we go back to some of our quote unquote rules that we've been given in the common lessons and I guess in the Tornhow, one of them is aim for an opening and one of yeah. them is cut from your strong side. So if your opponent, if you're right-handed and your opponent is standing in left ox, they're covering the opening that's on your strong side. So you have the choice of either cutting from your strong side and not cutting to an opening, or cutting to the opening, which would be their left side, but then you're not cutting to a strong side. Um, to, yeah, to, from from your strong side. Sorry. So the uh, the crump how kind of curves around 
breaking these rules by allowing you to cut to an opening while also cutting from your strong side. And it also, like, your opponent being in left ox kind of sets up a situation in which, like, a rule needs to be broken. So that, that hearing this, th like, hearing about the crooked hue being about breaking rules kind of sets off a light about that in my head. I think I might pull everything right back here because this this specific play of crump against ox is one that I think most people have trouble with. Yeah. But um so before we dive into that, into that Mike. Yeah. Bef before we go into that in too much detail, it's worth spelling out this is the first time I think in the in the Zessel that we come across a named guard with ox and shrank hook. Are they named before? No. Yeah, you're right. It's the first time that we come across um, this idea of the four versetson. I'm going to say four displacements. Screw you, Steve, in your translation. Are you, <laughs> four four fendings, four fendings. I, can't under, I can't understand what you're talking about. Are you talking about the four attacks? Yeah, four versetsons. Just uh, say okay. the four, four fendings. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Via Versetzen against the, the Via Lega. So so this is like uh what can we say, a system or a pattern for the next uh the next four hues where they break particular guards or are used to attack particular guards, counter particular guards. They're used to ambush people in particular guards, that's what Versetzen means. It's the four ambushes. Oh, it's attacks mm. on a military position. It's assaults it's, yeah. the, the four assaults, <laughs> really. No, no, it's no, like it's it's ambushes on somebody coming out on a, on a wild animal coming out of their no, lair. That's what it is. Somebody has an encampment outside your castle. No, it's not an ambush. You, it's killing and... an attack that flushes your opponent out of their lair. <laughs> Man, this episode's going to be great when we get to it in two months. Oh, speaking of guards, you forgot Aba. There's a third guard hidden yeah. here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so, so this is in uh, left. There's a. Every other gloss at this point goes against uh, against ox, against um, underhues and overhues. In left in the manuscript I was working from, does it get copied into the subsequent manuscripts? Yes, yep. it's in all the versions. It rather than saying uber, it says eber, and eber means boar and is a a guard in Mesa systems like plow. So when I saw this, I was just like galaxy brain moment. Obviously, using it to attack a flower-like position, and to be fair, like in actual fencing, I crimp against plow all the time if it's one of the extended ones. All right, I mean, but, uh, I think Paulus Cal has an illustration like that. Yeah, but um, people weren't entertaining my my wild theory. Lev also, um, he instead of saying it breaks the the guard, uh, which is called ox, he says it wars against. The ox and the boar, and right. also the, the military encampment. No, right. no, but that's that's because it gives you a bind to work from. Yeah, exactly. Well, does it though? Because yeah. I... <laughs> let's talk about interpretations. Yeah, Steve, can you give the the more standard interpretation, and then I'll give the crazy one. Can I say how I do it, or do you want to just do you want me to just? Describe uh, it? I think you do it the way most people do it, or do you not? 
Well, I, I do it the way most people do it, but I have a different setup. I'll just I'll just say it. So basically, your opponent's in ox and in, in left ox specifically, and you jump to the. Well, I'm basically paraphrasing what the text say. You jump to your right side, so you're kind of trying to jump around their point, and then you raise up your arms and hit him on the top of the hands with 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 crossed arms. Cool. Yeah, that that's all I'll say for now. What's the what's yours? So, uh, and I, I, I have never been able to successfully leap forward and hit my opponent on the hands when they're standing in ox. I don't know if T, as a fellow short person, had the same experience, but I've always found that to be an impossible dream. And I eventually stumbled onto a different interpretation of the way this could be read. Um, the interesting thing is that there's no illustrations of this. And I know that we can't assume illustrations have the same level of authority as text. But the illustrations across the board, through, um, beginning with 15th century texts and going through Joachim Meyer, all show the chrome binding on the blade um, against ox or against cuts. So, and the uh, illustration in the Clooney Effect book in particular shows it's still mid-strike where it's arcing over the blade. Um, so there's not even evidence that this is the result of a complex action, but he's clearly not even trying to reach Far enough to hit his opponent's hands in this illustration. Um, and then Christian Trosclair pointed out to me the strange use of prepositions in this text, where the cut is described as being performed from crossed arms as opposed to with crossed arms, as is often the case. Um, and that may just be a case of strange preposition usage, because Lord knows there's a lot of that in this text. Um, but it also could indicate that this is meant to be a two step movement in which you throw your krumpow across your opponent's blade in order to set up a secondary strike that goes over their sword, Ubazine hand, which is what the text says, um, and onto his hands or his head. So essentially, you're not attempting to, re to reach far ahead with your point onto his hands, but you're binding his sword and then cutting with your long edge onto his hands behind uh, as a secondary action. And that illustration is also shows up in a few places as a follow-up of the Krumpau um, with the that sort of cut, including in Goliath. Uh, but textually, there's not a clear explanation that you could use to prove this, so it's still a wild theory. I, however, have found it to work much better in fencing than trying to go for the hands. Uh, Johanna, as our resident linguist, do you have any opinions on German prepositions? Um... No, I, I'm not sure the preposition is like the key um, here. But one one thing to keep in mind is that in in some German dialects, um, for example, in mine, everything from my fingers to my shoulder is called the hand. So I I don't know if that was the case in early New High German, but right now hand. Um, doesn't have to mean like the, the English hand, but it can mean any anything from the fingers to the shoulder. Johanna, I think we, us and um, Johannes, I think had a conversation about this, this exact case in uh, the Discord, maybe like a couple months ago now. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, um, it's like Aus uh, Gekreuzen Armen, I think. Oh yeah, and it was the idea of Aus uh, describing 
or else possibly like describing a finishing position, which it does. It, it there's other cases in the text where they use else to describe a finishing position. Like I think the um, the Schielhau says like else. I forget what the German word is, but like uh, from extended arms, and that's supposed to be the position that you finish in. But they use else. Yeah, that that could work. Yeah. So um, the way I read it is that it should be, or <laughs> the hit should be made with um, crossed arms, but it, it doesn't really say when the when the arms should be crossed. So it it can happen like a a a second <laughs> before the hit lands. It's just it just means that somewhere somewhere or at some point while you're doing the the cut your hands should be crossed but it doesn't really explicitly tell us the the the, the point in time when you're supposed to cross your hands right and that's a yeah yeah it's it's a it's a tricky situation and yeah i think the i think the the most what seems like the most real way to read it is your your arms are crossed when you make the hit. Yeah. That that's 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 how I feel anyway. As far as the uh hitting the blade and then hitting the hands, I think that probably works better. But I don't think it's really supported by the text. Yeah, I agree. It fits really nicely as a strategy with some of the stuff that Travis and I were playing at at Longpoint around the idea of um, binding on and the entries to the different winding techniques, which we'll probably talk about uh, towards the end of the podcast series. The, the big problem is just finding a text that explicitly describes it. I don't know that we have. Um, even though the artwork is pretty uniform in how it depicts it, that's not the same thing as having instructions. I, I also wanted to add that if we're... If your opponent's an ox and you're binding onto their sword with the crump, what I like to do is bind on with crossed arms and then stab below. Yeah. If, if if you can. Kind of like a mutiran, except your arms are crossed. So you're on like the same side of their sword instead of the opposite side as with uh, mutiran. You might you might consider it a mutiran, you might not. Um, but I've landed that a couple times. I mean, I like to defense in a kind of left ox as a point withdrawn hanging parrying position that's sort of my my b or c game yeah and it bamboozles people who are used to only fencing me in um vom tag so sword up cutty and it's quite good because you can easily parry in a couple of different directions but the when people ask me for advice for fencing against it i'm like just attack the hands it's not especially threatening, and the hands are out there for you to snipe. And how would you snipe it? Well, you'd step offline, and you'd cut slightly crookedly. Well, I actually find the opposite. Whenever I play an ox, I find people immediately try to go for the crump to the hands, and because they're not setting it up in the way that I think it needs to be set up, it's very easy to see and kind of thwart and just stab them as they're trying to do that. Maybe, maybe the fences you fence try and fence according to the book. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, yeah. It may also just be a case that not nobody in, at least in American HEMA, uses ox as much as they could, which means yes. we aren't very practiced at fencing against it. 
Right. No, I don't think anyone is. I, I don't think yeah. I sense anybody who chills in it very often. So like I said in the last episode, it could be something that we'll get better at as sort of conditions change in the fencing game. I don't know. Can we talk about um, how we try to force the uh, the standard version to work, which I do? Go for it. So basically, my idea for uh, hitting the hands in left ox, so we're talking about the, the quote-unquote standard interpretation here where you just they're an ox you step to the side raise your arms up and hit them in the hands so my idea with this is that if your opponent is in left ox then the most open target is their upper right so i think that in the like the mindset of somebody fencing logically the the mindset of the the opponent um that we always see in the uh the RDL texts, they would be expecting a cut to come in at that side. So I think you pressure a cut to to the left side and get them to kind of start moving to defend against it. And then um, as you're going for that, you switch to the right side and uh, crump to the top of their hands. So I, I've never... Re I mean, again, I don't fence many people who use Ox. So my ability to test this out in a full-speed situation is, is limited. So I've never actually been able to do it, but that's just my uh, headcanon for how to get it to work. That would fit well with the fact this is one of the first places we see a phrase which is going to become common um, in several later techniques with the idea of uh, setting the foot forward as the first thing you're doing before you start the cut and the footwork itself. And if you're kind of pushing forward and you kind of sharply step your left foot, your left foot forward and maybe slightly towards their right side, your left side, that might draw them in that direction because they think you're about to continue that way, and then you can switch back uh, by springing. So perhaps. Yeah, that's that's kind of um, a strat that I used to use in kendo. So I um, I played Jodan, which is like high like high vomtog, and. Like you step to the left a little bit to pressure against hitting the uh, the arm, and then when they move to the de defend that, you push up, push off against your left foot, and step to the right and hit the head. It worked sometimes. I knew this was a kendo podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what what gave it away was it the ten minutes of kendo chat before? <laughs> yeah, it, it always has been. It's just now the paint's getting scratched off. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so can we, should we move on to the crumping against cuts? So I want to very quickly unpack one little thing here, which is this guard. And we'll probably talk about this a bit more when Shranku comes up later, but there isn't very much detail about what the position of Ox actually is uh, here. It just says it's a thing the other guy might do. Isn't it the hilt before the head? Yeah, it says, like, you know, holds his sword in front of his head, and, it's the, and that's Ox, right? Um, yeah, but, but that's because... RDLN isn't prescriptivist about guards. It's just like... Well, you just skip ahead and read the description, right? Maybe you just skip ahead. But whereas in just like the very next section with the shrank with the barrier guard, it tells you in pretty exquisite detail... In pretty boring detail. What the... Boring is another <laughs> way to look at it, yeah. Uh, what this How you do this position, where your feet are, where your sword should be, etc., etc. Um... And I have a, a personal theory I'm starting to work on where the idea 
the idea is that teaching here is mostly going to be conducted one-to-one. And so the coach, the instructor, the master is generally going to be the person holding, doing the thing the opponent does. They're showing you this thing and teaching you the way to deal with this position. So from that perspective, what the details of this position are don't really matter because your master can just point their sword at your face with their hands up high and go, yeah, this is Ox, now hit me in the hands or whatever, right? Whereas when they want you to do something, some position or work from some particular position, they need to describe that position to you in detail. Like, so you want to start out with your sword up by your shoulder and you put your left foot forward and then you can, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it, and that's one way to kind of get around the fact that we're introducing guards, which people haven't actually been taught how to do, uh, is the hypothesis that they're a guard that mostly the master is going to be used to teach you the technique instead of a guard that you as a student are expected to be expected to be using as well here. I guess jumping off that, you could also say that if your opponent's doing it, the details of what they're doing doesn't matter. So like, it doesn't matter to you if, like, for example, their uh, short edge is facing towards their head, which is a detail that we're given when they describe the guard ox. So that where his edge is facing doesn't really matter as long as like he's in the general position. Could that be like a thing? Maybe. Yeah, potentially. Um, if you see guards as a framework to understand the opponent's position, um, that definitely fits with that idea. Like, their hands are up high and on the left. Jobs are good. Right. So you you don't want to. I mean, I guess it would be kind of silly, but like you don't want to give the, your you don't want to give your student the idea that like if their long edge isn't facing their head, then this isn't going to work. Yeah, and you definitely do see some modern sword arts or modernly taught sword arts which teach in that kind of level of infinite detail uh you know there'll be a different parrier response to a cut whether it's two inches to the right or left and it's questionable how much you can ever actually employ that under pressure whereas a very simple version is much more usable perhaps yep are you saying i don't need to know all 10 degrees of binding pressure that the bow lays up? uh yes i am that's fake you is, that totally like a trope? is that a trope no it's tibot yeah. But we but brought, yeah. this is the third time we brought him up. <laughs> yeah, he's a great example. Okay, of things. Yeah, that's true. Of silliness. It's fake. You can't really do it. Spencer should actually be standing. Yeah. Okay. Do, do calculus in your head to figure out what to do next. Yeah. I I've got a, a question that's not directly related to bashing other fencing masters. <laughs> so. So we've taught Shrank Hut as a tool to get somebody to be doing their wind shield wiper motion. That makes me so angry. <laughs> after, after, after they can do the crimp action, do they ever need to care about Shrank Hut again? The only other play from Shrank Hut I can think of in anything resembling early KD, early Constant Spectans, is um, in the fencing from the sweeps uh, plays, which are in the Dresden Manuscript. Yep. Uh, there's a play where you drive the Verkera from Shrank Hut. Okay. Um, Which is actually useful? a really awesome technique. Um, uh, it works surprisingly well. Like, you start in Shrank Hut on your right, and you basically just step straight into Ox and then wrestle them when they panic. All right. Yeah, well, the, the Verkera doesn't really give... Um, it doesn't really say what position you should start in. But it does start uh, with Unterhaus. Or Oberhaus in Ringek. Well... Yeah. yeah, in the correct manuscript of Yudlev, <laughs> it starts with Unterhaus. 
And for Kara, it's going to be a whole episode by itself. There's so many variations by manuscript. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But although on that note, the uh, Iron Gate, the Eisenforte, and the Nebenhut, the way they're depicted in later manuscripts are not distinguishable from Schrankhut. Uh, yeah. So it's not clear what. So Meyer has a definition where I believe Schrankhut is both Iron Door and Side Guard, and then uh, Side Guard and Iron Gate are each on one side and not the other. So they're all named for the same position, but he has little differences between them. But then he wants to reserve Iron Gate to mean the Italian version, so he doesn't use it for long straight after that. But they're all they're all point down, sort of held forward positions. Yeah, my idea for uh, Nebenhut, which means like the side guard or like next to guard, is that it's not actually a guard itself. It's just a general term for positions like low positions where your sword is off to the side. And this is actually the word uh, Nebenhut is also used in um, Pseudo von Danzig's uh, pony as a name for the guard where you hold your sword down into the side. So it's kind of like um, Albert on horseback uh, pointing forward, but obviously it's next to your horse because you can't, because the horse's head is right in front of you. <laughs> sure. Uh, the other interesting thing about Shrankhut itself is that the technique that we usually teach is very specific, and it's based on Goliath mostly, where the sword is very upright and held in front, but the description does not require any of that. And any sort of low position um, where the sword is, uh, it specifies which edge is held against you and the point is down, are basically the only requirements. So there are much more relaxed versions of Shrankhut that would still work the same way, and you can still throw a, a Krumpau from. Yeah, the Goliath Shrankhut is garbage. The, one from the, version, the version I actually mostly teach is a very point-back Shrankhut. I think that one of the reasons people do the windscreen wiper, windshield wiper Krumpau, is that they want to go from one of the Goliath Shrankhuts to the other. Um, but mm -hmm. because I want my Krump to go quite forward um, and reach out towards a target, I normally teach a Shrankhut which is quite backwards. Um, as a starting position. So the point is kind of, you can imagine if you were to start with the sword at the shoulder and basically just pull your back arm down and back, it's almost yeah. getting more towards a Fiore long tail guard than it is to something that Goliath shows a shrank But that way the long edge is already lined up and it's basically just the same arc of the cut, but extended further back on the beginning. Sure, and yeah. I've seen lots of Fioris do a Krumpau from their Eisenfurt where the sword is pointed sort of directly to the side. They don't know they're crimping, but that's what they do. Because what the guard is <laughs> for. Yeah. yeah, it does <laughs> say it says hold the sword with your point. I'm I'm reading from Lev right now. Um, hold your sword with the point next to your right side on the ground. So if you take that totally literally, if it's next to you directly, like to your side, and not out in front of you, then that would give you a sword pointed backwards position. Yeah, or like a. Porta de Ferro, Falaringate type thing could fit with that. Right. Yeah, that's that's one, more the way I do is the Porta de Ferro, like kind of um, out and to the right a little bit. More, more importantly, though, doesn't the the general lesson tell us to you know be aggressive and be assertive and seek openings? And this section then saying, well chill with your sword out of the way, offering them your head to be hit. 
That's why it's the curved strike because it's, everything's evil. And wrong. One thing I, I find useful if you're going to try and do this, especially from Shrine Coat, is that you really don't want to just kind of stand around in your corner of the piece in Shrine Coat waiting for them to walk up to you and try and hit you in the head. You want to, if I'm going to try and do this, I normally do it by stepping forward sharply with the Shrine Coat thing. Uh, so I'm kind of pushing into their space and demanding that they try and hit me. And that helps me control the exact timing of when they're going to try and strike. And also kind of take away, it takes away space and time so they have less ability to pick to do what they want to do and are more likely to deliver a, a simpler, more direct, more panicky sort of cut, uh, which then is easier to dodge or to strike the blade or anything like that, depending on which gloss you read. There's an interesting note um, that I have here. The Latin version of this text um, inserts an extra sentence or phrase that's not in the German. Um, this is translated by Kendra Brown. It says, pull back the gladius in the manner of athletes in order to concede temporarily. So it's framing it as, uh, then it tells you to stand in your guard. So it's framing it as sort of a feint almost, where you're trying to draw your opponent's nakreisen by intentionally dropping your sword and pulling it backwards um, as though you're collapsing your position um, with the intent to hit them as they take advantage of it. So it's a much more active feint with your position. Okay, so, so not waiting there patiently. And does that fit in with, I'm sorry, guys, spoilers. There's a, another one of these hidden hues, uh, the last one. Which doesn't have a whole lot said about it. But it's basically if they're chilling with their sword down by the ground, walk up and hit them in the head. Which I guess is uh, a mirror image or a, an inversion of this section. Well, is maybe. That fair? Maybe. Maybe. Where I would say we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. It is definitely interesting that this is set up um, as an action which you do, which you're doing reactively. Um, there's a few of those. Absetson has a very similar set of descriptions where you're adopting a particular position and offering a particular opening in order to make a counterattack um, or some counteraction. So it's an idea that definitely exists in the system, but it's certainly not the common or preferred way to fence most of the time, um, I think would be fair to say. But yeah, this is the first place where it introduces the idea that you might be able to do that. Yeah, so by putting your sword to the side and giving your opponent your opening, you're kind of attempting to control where they hit you, which is an important, obviously an important piece of information if you're going to do a counterattack. But you're not really controlling when they hit you. And that's that's more like you're not controlling the timing, and that's kind of more important because if they're controlling the timing, then they can deal with like the fact that that you're controlling where you hit. And in order to take back control of the timing, you have to be moving. You can't be standing still. You yeah. gotta be doing something, whether it be like um, like T said, um, stepping in and you know pressuring that way, or like Michael said, uh, moving down, like seeing that they attack you as you're moving down into your uh, Shrankut as a provocation. Yeah. Well, this goes into this. Uh, you see this here where it talks about like while you're doing 
when you're coming to them in, in Zufectin at the beginning of the exchange, you do this stuff, right? So you're coming forwards, you do this stuff as you're hitting a particular distance to try and draw that attack at a particular predictable distance and at a predictable time. You've, you, you do it at this particular moment and that then becomes the natural time they're going to try and hit you. Uh, so you're taking away some control of the timing. Right. Yeah, if they fully control the timing... If they fully control the timing, they'll just do like a fake attack and like draw up your parry and then go around it. Or and because Comfort Strike is such a long action, your parry has to be super committed, so you're really, really vulnerable to feints. Right. But you know, so this would be a very situational thing where you need an opponent who you've noticed likes to try and attack your openings and actually is focused on that. Um, someone who ignores openings is not going to fall for this because they don't even know what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you. Like they they say like you know if you're down on the right side they'll go for your upper left opening, but really like if you're doing a crump how like that it'll it'll cover like any upper opening pretty much because you're sweeping your sword all the way, like you're doing the windscreen wiper motion all the way <laughs> up and over and it's kind of covering that entire area, so even if they cut to your upper left, or yeah if if they cut to your upper right opening then. Like that should still actually that'll be even better because now you're cutting against their flat. Well, you're trying to cut against their hands, remember, in Dante's oh, left. Um, and to reach the hands, it's a lot easier to reach them there. If you try to, if they cut from the left, you end up potentially catching on their cross guard uh, behind their blade. That's fair. I still think it puts you in like not. It gives you a pretty good position versus both of them. Um, that's actually an interesting point to bring up. A lot of people will teach the crump here certainly in my experience at least, as an action you can make from the shoulder against cuts or against ox, where you're striking the hands in both of them. But actually only Ringek talks about striking the hands with the crump from the shoulder. Danzig Lev... And he doesn't do it, it's usually cut. Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment, I think. But Danzig Lev only described that action from the barrier, which is an interesting little variation as well. Uh, so why is it that the, the shoulder isn't used as a way to target the hands? I guess would be the the question for the room and people who care about Lev and Danzig to answer that. I think that it could be. I mean, I think it could be too, but it's not described that way, and it's explicitly not described that way. I don't know. Any answer I could I would give would just be pure speculation. Yeah. I guess my speculation would be because they wanted an excuse to show us Strongcoot. Maybe. The other detail here is the one which Mike was about to, uh, Chittaser was about to pick up, which is that Ringek doesn't actually say that he cuts at your right side. Um, rather, when he hews from your right side yeah. towards the opening. So this kind of implies that he's cutting from his left. But that's a really weird construction that we don't see anywhere else. It is. It might right. just be a mistake. So it's been translated by most people as, as being an error in the text. But I don't see a reason to believe that because an opponent who is standing in left ox will do that cut from their left side most likely. So it, it seems to fit with the flow of the teaching that if you're trying to break his ox and he cuts at you, then that is what the cut will be doing. Yeah. I mean, I in my translation, I have it. I, I translate it as is and put a footnote that says it's probably a mistake. But. Yeah, so but it's interesting because it creates sort of a flow idea there where you're going to throw this crump, um, and even if he responds before um, in time, you're, you, then you're going to try and hit his hands anyways. So regardless of what he does, 
you're going to go for that hand shot. Yeah. And tactically, versus an attack from the left, what it ends up doing is instead of trying to jump out beyond the cut and come back to hit the hands, you're jumping behind the cut. Yes. Which is quite a nice place to attack the attack the arms from, tactically speaking. Yeah, it's way better, actually, than doing it the other way. Because... You know, how many people do you see who regularly make the crump against the hands work as a clean action? You have to typically be a lot taller than your opponent with a much longer fetter so that you can just outreach them completely. So I guess you can do it all the time, Steve. Well, I mean, if I'm going to snipe your hands, I'm probably not going to do it with a crump. But I, what I was going to say is I have seen people who are good at doing it, but not with the footwork described. Yeah, like doing it with a footwork which is a step back, for example, is something I can do really easily. Yes, that's that's trivially easy, doing it with a step back. But is there a reason that they don't that they have it as not a step back? Maybe stepping back is illegal or something. I don't know. But where, <laughs> yeah. whereas if they're cutting from their left to your right, bringing to your right forward and behind their like getting literally behind the arc of their cut opens up the arms completely as a target. Right. And makes it impossible for them to try and touch you. Yeah. Plus, this is like, this is a dodge. If I don't have a sword at all and somebody is going to cut me with a diagonal cut and I just am supposed to dodge their sword, it's probably not going to work. But this I've is got the direction you go. It, it, it begins with B and ends with it. Huh? The idea of dodging a sword cut at you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> practice that back in Arma. That was one of our drills. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what that, that's what it's telling you to do here. Like the crump out, it's telling you to jump away from his cut, and basically just there's no opposition in this. You're trying, you're just dodging his cut and hitting him in the hands. Well, we would do is you try and grab his hands and do a dagger disarm. Yeah, like Aikido style. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Although, actually, the other uh, potential thing is that it typically says that you're striking with the point. Um, I've seen a uh, shout out to Magic Talaga of Sprickfencer blog who put out a video about um, throwing, shooting the point in Krum in his Shisen video. Mm -hmm. And he showed a, like a, a slight tweak to the way you can do Krum where you throw, the, you throw the cut so that the point itself lands and it basically stop thrusts the incoming cut. I actually have considered, I considered that interpretation a couple of years ago and I tried it. Like, I, I, I had someone in my club be like, okay, cut me full speed, and I tried to do it, and I couldn't do it, and it was, it was like, it seemed dangerous to do their, to their hands, because there are some pretty, like, strong hits going directly to the hands, and I was still getting hit anyway. Yeah. So I kind of abandoned it after that. It's maybe dubious, but it does kind of fit with the idea, like, that would be, in some ways, a way to actually gain cover again. If you want to try and get some cover behind the blade, like if you stop hit the hands, they can't get closer to you. Right. Yeah. Theoretically, I I like that idea a lot because stop hits to the hands do work very well if someone's cutting you. It raises an interesting question of why we're specifically told to be cutting with the point here, and what that means for the technique. Um, does it just mean that you're at the edge of your reach, or is there some other meaning? Because it doesn't say shoot the point; it says throw the point. I, I yeah. don't remember. Does three two two seven eight talk about shooting the point with the crimpow? I don't think it does. I believe it does because Magic was saying it did, but I can't remember his video or his article off the top of my head. We can throw a link to it in the description, and people can go read it themselves. Yeah, maybe I'll look it up. All right. 
But it's an interesting little detail. Has anything got uh, something else to add to this section, or shall we wrap up? I wanted to just quickly bring out that this is the second case, we talked about the first one last episode, where you're explicitly described something on both sides with full detail. Here with Shrankut, again, you've got a full explanation of the position on both sides, uh, which is an interesting thing to see. Okay, so I have the, the text here. It does not mention shooting the point with the Krimpow, but it does mention something that I had for completely forgotten, um, which reinforces my wild theory about cutting to the blade against Ox, which is that it does seem to describe the Krimpow as a two-part action, um, where it says, uh, hew in a curved manner swiftly and well, and throw or shoot your point over his hilt and over his hands um, as two separate sort of sentences. So you could read it as a continuous action, or you could read it as you're hewing crooked, and then you're throwing your point over your hands afterward, which also is sort of how the, the verse plays out. But again, it's not conclusive because it doesn't give you enough context to know that's what it's saying. Um, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't mention throwing, shooting the point. It does say you can thrust afterward, um, but that's about it. Oh, well, I guess you could read throw or shoot your point over his hilt and over his hands as being a reference to Einschießen and not just another synonym for throw. Yeah, and like this is part of an extended article that Machik was writing about the idea of Shisen. So, three to two seven a is great for being ambiguous. It's not so good if you want firm answers. Yeah, um, it's a pretty interesting set of theory, though. So it's definitely worth checking out if you're interested in deep geekery. Um, he did some very detailed analysis of every use of terms like that in the manuscript, kind of thing. Yeah, we should put a link in. I I don't think I've read the thing. I've only watched the video. The video is good, but the article is in some ways better. Definitely worth cool. reading. The other last thing I'd probably mention, since we seem to be wrapping up, is that uh, Ringek actually has something very different for the play from the Barrier Guard here, and we're going to talk about it in the next episode. But Ringek describes this as an action against the Blade instead. And he wants to end in the Barrier Guard, not begin there. Yes. Uh, so he's given a very different flow to the action. And from that perspective, um, when I did the Illustrated Ringek on this, I actually showed both versions of Barrier Guard. One which is more like the um, Goliath one, which is a better ending position. You might cut into that position with the point more forward. And one which is a more taily one, where the point is more backwards and has a better starting position. Because I think they both fit the category, and depending on whether you want to start or end in the position, you'll want to go to a kind of one or the other version. One of the big causes of the Windshield Wiper Crump, which is a, a version of the Crump I don't really like, technically is, I think, the idea of being wanting to start from and finish in exactly the same position uh, instead of starting from a more point-back barrier and finish, if you're going to finish in one, in a more point-forward version. Mm -hmm. James Clark came up with a pretty interesting version of the crimp that's based on that idea but very different um, because his he was looking at um, the plays from Iron Gate in 3227A and seized upon the idea of cutting from what we would call a shrankut through long point and then back to other side shrankut. So it was sort of a very forward-oriented position that I guess has an analogs in Montante, where you're very much sweeping forward through a long point and then back and then continuing to both sides. That was really cool and really great for intimidating an opponent. Um, but not so good for actually performing the plays. It's given in the text, so it didn't really go anywhere. But um, was the only way I've seen where you could do a, a cut from Shrankut to Shrankut that wasn't shit. So possibly worth mentioning. Cool. Well, 
thank you very much everybody this has been episode 11 of fencing by the book i've been your host mike smorge and joining me today were our panel of johanna Hopgardner, michael chillister stephen cheney and tq publish every week either i don't think any other podcast is that mad is it well no, no, I mean, a lot of them are actually I mean, so. if we don't do it every week then like when are we going to finish this this is going to this we're going to do like over 100 episodes on this true if we're going through the entire gloss and then we've got to do horseback <laughs> <laughs> no then the Hans middle podcast starts Oh, yeah. And then, then we've got to do Fiore. <laughs> and then we're going to do the Meyer podcast. The very first response I had from UK humorists was, oh, cool, are you going to do Fiore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was right. like, maybe in five years, dudes. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. panel for that. I guess uh, Chittister can stay on it because he does Fiore. Yeah, <laughs> he would be the panel because nobody else cares. Well, we could put um. Uh, yeah, there's a we, couple of Discord guys who are really active, aren't there? I think. I reckon we could totally have a really funny Fury panel if we pick one of the Finnish guys who quit Guy Winter School, and one of the Exiles, and Adrian, and somebody from the International Armatories Society in America. <laughs> Greg Neary. Um, either Greg or Sean Hayes, and like the the podcast would stop after three episodes, but they'd be three really great episodes. <laughs> right, and then we'd find out that one of them murdered another one. Exactly. Um, they, it, like it would, it would turn into a fight, like in armor, in a bridge in Italy somewhere or something. That sounds great. Why, why haven't this happened yet? Yeah, you could do like an episode on each play. What would you do? Just longsword, or would you do a whole system? For Fiore. Yeah, well, I feel like yeah. you'd have to do the whole system, start with, right? Start with yeah. that and go through. Well, if you did only <laughs> longsword, then you'd be done in three weeks.